This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Russian-born, UK-based garden designer, plantswoman, and mother, Anna Andreeva, is working on her horticultural research PhD under British plantsman Nigel Dunnett in Sheffield, England. So the idea for me is to sort of become a real landscape scientist and to apply scientific principles to the designs I work on. She collaborated on the planting plans for the Ukrainian garden at the Hampton Court Flower Show this last year. And she joins us this week to share more about gardens and plants as common grounds and art forms to help meet the challenges of today and those ahead of us. Stay with us. Thank you. 
This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Anna Andreva is a Russian-born garden designer, plantswoman, and mother. She learned to garden and love plants from an early age, but it wasn't until earning her degree in economics in Russia that she decided to follow her passion for horticulture. After designing many public projects in Moscow in the early 2000s, she decided to pursue a horticultural and ecological research PhD under British plantsman Nigel Dunnett in Sheffield, England. There, she focuses on the steppe plants of the world, for green roofs and for gardens generally. In our ongoing exploration of where gardeners are and what they are growing, Anna joins us this week to share more. Anna, I am so pleased to have you on the program. Welcome. Thank you, Jennifer, for the wonderful introduction. I'm really happy to be here. If you were to describe to listeners your primary motivating sort of principle or motivation for uh, for being a gardener and your relationship with plants in your life right now, how would you describe that, Anna? Working with plants is both there's a scientific side to it, which I love, and you explore nature and you know how it works, but also it's basically like playing with toys and that gives you the most pleasure you can ever have. You know, you spend so much time researching plants and learning about them and designing them, but then you go out and when you actually do it, it's the same as playing with toys when I was little. It's exactly the same feeling. I think that's why we do it. And then the result, just amazing beauty you create and it's there and you did it. This is just the thing that keeps me going. And also that people can see it. This is why I love working in the city and then the projects people can actually see. So before we get into your migration to um, the United Kingdom and your uh, pursuit of a PhD in horticulture there in Sheffield, tell us a little bit more about what brought you here, your, your earliest influences and maybe where you were born and raised and give us some highlights on the people and places and plants that grew you into a person for whom you know, plants would be your playmates and would be your creative expression in the world as well. So I'm from Moscow and I spent 40 years of my life there. And when I was little, as all Moscovites, we had a little dacha. So it's a little country house with a little garden. And as it was perestroika times, people usually grew vegetables there just to survive. Mm. But my grandparents felt a bit different, so we didn't really do that. And we were one of the first people there who decided to create a lawn and flower borders. And it was also influenced by the fact that my mom at the time was living uh, in New York, working for the United Nations as a translator. So that idea of an American garden with a lawn was really influential. So we did that. We didn't even have a lawnmower. We did it using scissors. Very, very tedious task. And then we created the first borders. They were really classic borders, you know, with low things and then go high, high, high up. That's how I started uh, getting into gardening. Describe that just a little more. Describe those people, uh, you know, who were involved in showing you which plants you were going to choose and and how you work with them and what plants might have been included. And tell us a little bit about that climate that you were working in at the time. So the climate in Moscow is uh, temperate. Uh, you have cold winters and then you have hot continental summers. 
that are quite nice, quite dry. And uh, where we garden, the soils were quite clay and they would flood in the spring. So actually the typical Russian or Soviet uh, cottage garden is all North American prairie plants. Interesting. So you'll have phloxes, brutbeckes, all these sort of things, and they thrive really well. Uh, in our garden, so when my mom got back from New York, she has become a real plant geek. And at the time, you were already able to buy interesting plants by people from the Baltic states, because there, there are quite a lot of horticulturalists, and they would come to Moscow and sell the plants. So every weekend, she would go to the market and spend enormous amount of money on new plants. Yeah. So every weekend, she would bring 10 new plants, 20 new plants, right. and we would all put them in the garden. So by the time I was a teenager, we basically tested every perennial you could try and you can get hold of. And it was just amazing. Yeah. But when I had to choose whether to go to the university, as the Soviet Union just collapsed, you couldn't really make any money being a botanist or a landscape architect. Uh, so I decided to go and study economics instead. Uh, and at that time in Russia, yeah, you already had a market for gardens. So I decided, okay, I need to pursue my dream and then do that. And I already knew quite a lot about perennials. So trees, they were quite new to me. Uh. So I did the degree at the Moscow um, State Architectural University in landscape uh, design for two years. And it wasn't very um, good degree design-wise, but it was brilliant um, in terms of natural uh, science knowledge. Okay. So soils and plants, trees, that was really, really in-depth. And uh, people from the Moscow Botanical Gardens taught us. So that was in around 2006, 2007, 2008. Yeah. yeah. And so from there, where do you go and what do you decide to do? So then, so when I did the degree, uh, I decided, okay, I need to find work. So I decided I'm going to specialize in perennials because this is the instant wow effect. Then I saw Pete Odell's garden. That was already a thing. So I've learned basically design principles from reading Noel Kingsbury's book. <laughs> And at the same time, my son was born. So for a year when he was born, I decided I'm not going to read any other books. I'm just going to read things about horticulture and design. And I did that. Nice. And just I was just rereading and rereading those books. And they, he's a brilliant writer. So he puts all the principles so easily together. And then you just basically, uh, so I know I knew the plans. Right. But the thing is, the challenge in Russia, we have completely different seasons. Uh. So when you have a Pete Odell book, if you're in the Netherlands or if you're, say, in uh, England or in uh, Belgium, you can just copy the combinations. So in Russia, they're completely different because the flowers, the same flowers would bloom at a completely different time. So I had to come up with my own version of Pitwoodle style, the new perennial wave. So give me an example of when you say they'll flower at a completely different time. Give me an example across months of what your seasonal um, shifts might be. So in Moscow, the climate is continental, so right. it's much hotter in the summer than okay. it is in Holland or in the UK. So to make the plants overlap, you need way more plants. So the way they overlap in Pete Odell's planting, you will never have it in Russia. So say salvia would be in June, and it will never overlap mm -hmm. with the August things like Monarda or Ericastrum. Right. So in Pete Odell's planting, they're all overlapping. Or in the UK, it's so easy to design, you know, uh, you can get away with six plants and that will still be a striking combination because they all bloom for two months whereas in Russia it's two weeks. And it really underlines that importance for us as gardeners to not take other people's garden wisdom without 
processing it through our own experience and observation of our own places, I think, is is the key to being successful. There's another aspect to that as well. So when you design with plants, designs, um, it's not just about how things look, but every plant is usually connected to a certain memory. And it's usually people's childhood memories that you work with. So if you just copy Pete Odell's garden, then your clients or people you mm. design with will not be able to relate to that. So you need to think through and include the plants that people will be familiar with. And then it works on a different level. Yeah, that yeah, that emotional connection to to the plants um, and the designs, I think, is critical. Uh, and in these last three, four years, that has become much more visible to people in their gardens, I think. Okay, so keep us going. You do this great sort of self-taught advanced study uh, while you're in your first year of motherhood. And where do you go from there? So then uh, in Moscow, we had this thing where, you know, Putin and Medvedev, uh, the guy he swapped with, uh, decided never to go away. And we had protests because of that, because we were just all tired and it was just getting a bit... Uh, desperate. So uh, quite a lot of people protested against that. So uh, the Moscow government thought, okay, we need to do something for the middle class people. So they will feel a bit happier with what's going on. So let's create uh, a comfortable city for them, comparable with Western cities. So let's invest a lot of money in parks and public spaces, and that will keep them happy for a while. And uh, I was part of that movement. So uh, Moscow government created this so-called authority for parks, uh, based on the uh, authorities for parks you have in the, the UK or in mm -hmm. the United States. So they took all the officials uh, to the Millennium Park in Chicago to show them that, yes, you can have amazing gardens in similar sort of climate. Everyone was really impressed. And I met these people at a conference. And then I told them, look, you need to hire me because I know how to do this. And they were a bit reluctant at first. So I called them for six months every week, just saying, you need to really try me. And it was winter. And I said, look, come spring, you will be desperate. Let's start sooner than later. Uh, so it took six months. And then they called me in April saying, yes, we're really desperate. We need designs <laughs> as soon as possible. <laughs> because we need to do something in May. Yeah. So I, came, so I joined the team. Uh, so I did the first uh, sort of perennial new wave planting in Moscow that year. Uh, in the Museon Park, and that was quite successful in other parks as well. And the next year, I did my bigger project so far. So that's a one kilometer long embankment uh, meadow planting along the Moscow River. It used to be a busy road that was converted to be a linear park. Mm -hmm. uh, and I worked with Bauhaus Architects and LDA Design uh, helped on the landform, and I did all the planting for that. Very. So I basically put every plant, every perennial I knew and all my knowledge in these yeah, yeah. Uh, meadows. Yeah. Can, can you describe a little bit of maybe, you know, a section of the planting plan or uh, give us a few more details on, on that experience and, you know, how many plants you put in and what time of year were you planting, Anna? So in Moscow, everything happens very quickly. So you design, say, in the spring and then it gets built in the summer and then it opens in in October because no one wants to wait. So I basically designed everything in two months from uh, April to May, and it was all built the same year, which wow. is amazing. Yeah, 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 
And because everything was built on utilities, we couldn't really have many trees. So I only was able to place a few trees. Most of them are uh, crab apples, which look amazing in the in winter, yeah. with colorful fruit. And I just love crab apples. I just have a soft spot for them. Uh, but most of it is meadow planting because we couldn't really place any trees. And I used the idea of metrics, which I think is a really strong idea when you design public realm. So you know how um, perennial planting naturalistic planting is often criticized for looking untidy. But if you create a matrix of grass that is quite symmetrical, that, that allows you to hide that untidiness within it. And over years, the planting still looks nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And that's been, I think that's been a, a concept to really take off here uh, in the last five, 10 years. You know, I, I think back to um, Lauren Springer's undaunted gardening coming out of the Midwest here, and then mm -hmm. uh, the matrix planting really kind of broken down in a very systematic way in planting in a post-natural world by Thomas uh, Rayner and yeah. Claudia West. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I think people understand what you say, uh, what mm -hmm. you're describing there. Give us some of the plant palette that you were working with. So I'm using two uh, grasses as a metric. So I'm using the one uh, that is the earliest to come out when uh, the snow melts. So that's mm -hmm. the Champsessus pitosa, tufted hair grass. Mm -hmm. And it's literally four days after the snow melts and it's already green. <laughs> <laughs> and then another one uh, is a perfect grass, but it appears a bit later, Malinia cerulea. Okay. So that's another perfect grass because it stays amazingly symmetrical through the winter until the spring. Okay, nice. So that's wonderful grass to work with but it emerges a bit later so I used both so I had some hills with Malinia and some hills with Trump's air it was also all on landforms which created more interesting topography um, and the plants literally every perennial I knew and was able to get hold of was there and for the influx of color I used the most colorful lone lasting uh, perennial we can get which is lots of different salvias okay yeah so where pretensis salvia nimorosa so all sorts of bright salvias and people love that and they're um they're little outbursts of color where people take their photos in front of and you can see on instagram just loads and loads of photos in june of people doing photo sessions and it's just lovely this is cultivating place Anna Andreeva is a garden designer pursuing an ecological and horticultural research PhD on steppe plants and their capacity, not only for green roofs and urban planning, but for gardens generally. We'll be right back for more after a quick break when Anna will share more about the kinds of plantings and combinations she loves to work with and experiment with. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. Speaking of traveling farther afield, I'm heading to Ohio next week, to Oxford, Ohio specifically, where I will be at Miami University of Ohio and then on to a design summit in Columbus. And I am really looking forward to meeting gardeners of the professional and home varieties in both locations. If you happen to be within driving distance of Oxford, Ohio on Tuesday the 20th of September and want to get together with an enthusiastic group of like-minded gardeners and cultivators of place, please join me Tuesday evening from 5 to 7 p.m. for an evening focused on how gardeners grow the world and our future better. 
hosted by Miami University's Institute for Food, Institute for the Environment and Sustainability, and Miami, Ohio's Ecological Research Center, as well as the De Fleur Garden Club, the event is free and will take place at Oxford Seniors. But registration is required and space is limited and going fast. For more information and to register, visit cultivatingplace.com forward slash events and scroll down to September 20th. I am looking forward to meeting all of you great gardeners there. We're back now to our conversation with Anna Andreva a garden designer currently based in the United Kingdom working towards becoming a landscape design scientist through her research PhD under British plantsman Nigel Dunnett. As we come back, Anna shares more of her go-to plants and combinations in this pursuit, including traditional steppe plants like peonies and lilies. In the spring, it's alliums, so it's full with allium everesta, which creates an amazing, amazing uh, view because it's quite strong and big. Although I'm quite careful now using it public realm schemes because it could be a bit untidy and it has to be hidden uh, a bit in the way of grasses. Uh, so after the alliums uh, come salvias and just lots of other things, or any castrums. And do you do uh, like? I'm I'm gonna guess rudbeckias yeah. do really well there. All the cone flowers, how do they work there? So these come uh, in this planting. I don't really have uh, as much North American ones. They do come later. So these are August ones. So monardas, phloxes, they come in the autumn, yeah. in the in the August and sort of uh, beginning of autumn, as as well as persicarias. But yeah. the, the the June ones, uh, these are mostly uh, European ones, geraniums. Salvias, uh, different umbellifiers. And do you have sort of specific, is there a native plant movement? Funny story is, and it tells you how often we as gardeners are disconnected from the world of nature and science. So I am from Moscow. So in Moscow, the flora is quite poor, the same as in the UK, because it was wiped out by the glacier. Uh, but 100 kilometers south of Moscow, um, south from the river Aka, where the glacier has stopped, you already have the meadow steps, mm. where salvia pretensis actually grows and right. is native. Yeah? yeah, but I never knew about that because I'm from a different part region. of yeah, yeah, region. So I only saw it first in Pitodolsplant in in Sweden. That's right, <laughs> and only after I've done my project in Moscow, I've learned that actually they're just there, 100 kilometers away. It's an hour drive from where I live. But only after I've started to explore more and learning about plant communities and different step plants right. and meadows. But no, before that, I knew loads and loads of things about common garden plants and in great detail, but I didn't know where they grow. And this is how my interest to pursue more scientific education came from, because I just knew I had to know more. So you work on this fantastic civic project there in Moscow. Uh, There is a lot of uh, social and political um, unsettledness, you know, disturbance going on um, at the time. Did it, did the gardens help? How did they land with people in the cities? Uh, You you talk about the sort of wave of people taking pictures. um, And so it sounds like it landed really well and they were, they were beautiful and well-received. Oh, yeah, it was fantastic impact. And even now, 10 years later, so now the project is a bit run down, but I meet people and they 
introduce me to her, that, that her kids saying, this is Anna, she's created this amazing garden you grew up in. And this is just so sweet and fantastic. And I couldn't believe it myself. So it was basically the Moscow Highline. And it looked really, really well. And the plants we planted, the budget was huge, so they were all quite big. So in the second year, it already looked like a well-established garden of, of a great scale. But uh, talking about politics, so I was thinking, okay, so that's the Moscow Highline, so we will have no issue maintaining it, because obviously maintaining this sort of planting requires a lot of knowledge. It's not just the physical amount of work you need to put in, but you need to know what you're doing. And that, as it turned out, was completely impossible. I just couldn't get through it. Because it turns out for the people who took care of the garden, so at first for the first two years it looked okay, but then you know you reach a tipping point where it actually needs maintenance. And then at that point, the management of the park has changed and was replaced by people who weren't really interested in maintaining it. So their idea was uh, actually we want to replace that planting with something else because we can make money from doing that. So I organized this uh, community of volunteers, like a, like volunteers of the Highline, similar to that. And I thought, oh, we're going to have uh, friends of my embankment and they're going to volunteer. But the park says, no, we don't really want that. Because if you volunteer, then we'll have questions why the people who get paid to maintain the garden are not doing their job correctly. So they said no. And then over the years, it was just getting worse and worse and worse. And there's nothing you could do about it. So you just, the only thing you can do is just let go. I guess, but that was very difficult. Very difficult. Yeah. Very of, difficult. Yeah. And so ultimately you, you make a decision to, um, to become an expat and move to the United Kingdom and pursue your, your PhD. Tell us about that transition and, um, you know, your goals for that and, uh, that experience of working, uh, with Nigel Dunnett, I believe. So I did quite a few public projects in Russia and I got interested, uh, in the topic of, uh, working on roof gardens. So I did a workshop in Yakutia and this is part of the Russian Far East, which is very, very big. And it's a land of diamonds and gold and silver. Um, and then there, the climate is extreme. So they have really short but very hot summers so two and a half months of summer at 35 degrees and then they have really long winters and it's minus 50 but but it's one of the places where uh they have so-called relic steps so you know the huge mammoth step of the eurasian step bomb that stretch from from the pacific into the spain where the mammoth row so bits of that are still there so I came there and I was like, oh my God, this planting is just amazing. I've never seen anything like that before. And it can survive at minus 50. So that would be perfect for Moscow roof gardens. Because in Moscow, if you use native planting, it will just freeze out because it's too cold. So there was always that issue. And I thought, that's a brilliant idea. But the thing is, in Moscow, no one is actually interested. Yes, you can do a few private clients uh, and do their rooftop gardens, but it's very niche and the government is not interested in that. And at the time uh, I met Nigel and I volunteered for his garden at Chelsea Flower Show and we got talking about that and I already wanted to do some sort of degree and I wasn't sure what to do. And he said, but you're too overqualified for a master's degree. So why not do a PhD exploring the step plans for rooftops and roof gardens? So oh, great. that's, yeah, so that's how it happened. Yeah. And so what year did you uh, make the move to the United Kingdom? So I moved here four years ago when I was 40. So I thought that's an interesting sort of a <laughs> new, <laughs> new start of life. Right, right. 
And how long will the program be? And, and what are the, um, in, in your mind, what are your goals for um, the culmination of, of the project for you, of the PhD? Well, so usually PhD in the United Kingdom is three and a half to four years old, but uh, because of COVID, that process has become extended. So uh, we had a few setbacks because of that with my experiments, because when you work with life plants, it's more difficult. No, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So the idea for me is to sort of become a real landscape scientist and to apply scientific principles to the designs I work on. So I've got Nigel, who is an amazing supervisor and always so excited to talk with and, you know, guide you through things. I also have another supervisor from uh, Russia who is a steppe ecologist and mm. he's basically just helping me out for free because he just loves steps and he wants to promote them all over the world mm. so he also helps me on uh, educating me about different types of steps and the really difficult scientific size of it and all the uh, German books for example I'm reading that haven't been translated into English so my German came useful yeah we're we're using this term, and I think it would be useful to define it for people. Describe what you mean when you say step, and give us a little um, mini lesson in in what their conditions are. You've already told us a little bit about that in terms of their extreme temperatures, and maybe be a little more specific about some of the steps you're familiar with or have visited, and and where they occur across the globe. So the original word step comes from. Russian, and originally the steps were only Eurasian steps, so the Eurasian grasslands that stretch from uh, Austria-Hungary into almost the Pacific Ocean, um, but they're quite different climatically, and they're different types of steps as well, which was very confusing when I first started to research into that, because you have true steps. So these are the steps where there's not enough precipitation, not enough water for the trees to grow. So the trees simply cannot grow. So that's why you end up with grasslands. So instead, the dominant uh, vegetation type is grass. And then you would have, depending on the type of step, you could either have lots and lots of flowers and geophytes, or you can have a few of them, or you can have a few shrubs, and then you can have shrubby steps. But there are also so-called forest steps. So these are the things uh, that are... Uh, receive more precipitation and then depending on the aspect say it's a northern slope or a southern slope uh, the vegetation can either develop into a forest or it would be a grassland vegetation like steppe vegetation then you have the desert steps this is where the precipitation is really really low and they're almost deserts but uh, it's very grassy and you have uh, shrubs as well so there are different types of steps uh, depending on where you are. And now with the, so now the word step has been expanded to the grasslands of say North America. So now North American prairies are also steps. And there are steps in Patagonia, there are steps in North Africa. So now this word has been increasingly used for all grasslands uh, that are not Mediterranean, but of sort of that type with continental, uh, continental uh, climate. But actually, Mediterranean steps also exist, and they have a different pattern. So in the Eurasian steps, uh, you have rainfall in the summer and then you have snow, but in the Mediterranean steps, it's different. So you have all the rainfall in winter and they're different types of steps, but they're also increasingly um, useful for the changing climate scenarios, say for the UK. So if you talk about plants, when you think about steps, uh, this is such a wealth of plants you can only imagine, say peonies. 
that's a typical step plant, which is something you don't think about. Or lilies, they as well. Or salvias, a typical step plant. Uh, so many, many of the steps uh, that you have in the UK in, uh, in gardens, they're all step plants. Uh, euphorbias, uh, salvias, uh, different scabios, uh, just lots and lots of plants people are familiar with, but they just never know they come from the steps. I, I was born and raised at 8,000 feet in Colorado, and those high prairie uh, or high desert or high grasslands, um, you know, all start to fall into some variation of a step condition. And I think one of the things that's interesting about them is that these are plants that are co-adapted with really extreme temperature shifts in terms of cold and hot, in terms of low water, in terms of high wind. Um, and so they are really interesting to look at as plants we can learn from and use more effectively as climates become more extreme around the globe. But they are also interesting in terms of um, kind of watching and listening to our plant life, how plants migrate to the steppe or away from the steppe in response to climate change so that uh, they are some of our kind of sentinel research on um, what what we can do to help with adaptations in, in gardens. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of just a fascinating um, observation. And as I say, kind of like canary, uh, for for what we can expect as things shift. It's actually an interesting topic that I'd like to discuss a bit in detail. Uh, you know, when we look at different plant communities, when we think about adapting them for the climate change or for the urban environment, say the green roof, sometimes we see things uh, as they are without actually understanding the natural process. For example, many people think that communities on cliffs or on mountaintops are similar. Uh, conditions as uh, conditions will be on a rooftop because they're shallow but the truth is not at all because the thing is there's a lot of moisture trapped inside the rock and even if the roots can go there the mycorrhiza can so when you look at the plants that grow on cliffs actually they're not really suffering from lack of water they have plenty so if you try to move those shrubs or some of them plants on a green roof uh, they're not necessarily going to do well because the conditions are slightly different and that's something to remember. So I think uh, what I've learned from what I'm doing for my PhD is you actually need to understand nature quite well. The same misconception goes for deserts, for example. You think in a desert, you don't have enough water, but no, you have quite a lot of water because the way the desert works, it just slides to certain spots where the vegetation grows and it could be quite a lot. This is Cultivating Place. Anna Andreeva is a garden designer pursuing an ecological and horticultural research PhD focused on steppe plants and all they have to teach us. We'll be right back for more after a quick break when Anna shares more of her design step research for green roofs and landscapes on urban buildings as well as public gardens generally. Stay with us.
Hey, it's Jennifer, Thinking Out Loud this week. You know, one of the things I love about this conversation with Anna is that realization that sometimes we all know less about our most familiar landscapes than we do about landscapes far from our homes, but that in leaving home, we sometimes come to know it and appreciate it and its landscapes and native plants far more deeply and fully. Like Anna learning that one of the rugged salvias she enjoyed using in planting designs was native to an area just a short distance from her childhood home. And that lilies and peonies and alliums are all great garden plants native as well to the steppes of the world. It kind of reminds us to take field trips close to home a little more often and to enjoy the botanical wonders of our own neighborhood walks and our own backyard biodiversity, as well as enjoying horticultural travel further afield. We're back now to our conversation with Anna Andreva, gardener and designer working towards becoming a landscape design scientist through her research PhD under British plantsman Nigel Dunnett. As we come back, Anna, who is experimenting with the most common substrate available for green roofs in the industry now, and also experimenting with two different depths. 200 millimeters, which is the standard green roof depth, and 400 millimeters, a common standard landscape on larger urban buildings. In her experiments, she is playing with a wide variety of steppe plants in these conditions, looking for best survival, best aesthetics, and maximum biodiversity possible. As we come back, she goes into detail about her research experiments and trials and what they can teach us in a changing world. So, and I've created uh, two so-called design steps. So design step communities using the metrics of grasses, typical step grasses such as Calaria, Stipa, uh, and I've added Cislaria. So the idea is uh, basically the idea of my mixes is broadly preferencing um, the steps of Dauria. So Dauria is this part uh, east of Lake Baikal in Siberia, Russian Far East. And it's a very interesting place because they have a super interesting climate pattern. So it's influence, it's very continental. There's little snow in winter. So there's little snow to melt in the spring and the spring is really dry. So they have dry springs. And then after that, they're influenced by monsoon and the rain. Ah, okay. Also about every 10 years, they would have a really, really rainy year or a few of them. And then after that, really dry years. And the average precipitation is still quite low, so it's 350. So it's really, really dry. And they have plants that adapt to that. And the, the composition of plant changes depending on the um, climate that year. So they have all, all sorts of plants and a huge diversity of them. So I apply the same principle in my experiments. So I have the grasses that are more mesic, which is a term for saying they just like more moisture, mm-hmm. although it's not really scientific because you can't really define it. So it's just something people throw around a bit and it could be very confusing. And some are more xeric, which means uh, they need less water, but also there's no definition of that. So I'm not even sure it's a good one to apply. So, so I'm using uh, the steeper that is actually not uh, a typical uh, feather grass from the steps because I tried some of them and they just 
can deal with the winter rain in here. Uh, instead, I'm using a steeper from Mediterranean region, say mm -hmm. native to the south of France and North Africa, steeper Barbata. Looks exactly the same as the steeper from the Eurasian steppes, but can survive the UK summers and can survive the UK winters. Yeah really yeah. well so that's and then I have lots and lots of uh, different perennials I'm testing because it is important that the planting must be colorful and people must like it because uh, as Noel Kinsbury once said uh, people are a part of the ecosystem too so we also need to be happy yeah with the yeah. planting we create and that's yeah. really important so I'm testing yeah. different salvias uh, different alliums uh, different scabios some of the seeds I've collected on my field trip to East Siberia and brought them here so hmm. uh, it's quite interesting, uh, but quite a few of them, about 60% I was able to buy here and they're actually in uh, UK common sale in nurseries. So it was quite easy to get hold of them. And also UK is so brilliant for people who are just crazy about plants. So for example, I was able to buy ephedra. That's a step shrub from uh, the one you make ephedrine from. Yeah. So it's actually banned for propagation in Russia. Ah, ah, interesting. Here, so the issue, yeah, so you can buy it and you can use it in planting. So there is no issue and it's evergreen and it's really, really tough. And I saw it in the Siberia. And so I'm using it in my um, Asian set of uh, step plants. So I've got nice. two sets. One is more like Euro Central Europe uh, and another one Central and uh, Russian and Ukraine. Um, and another one is more Asian with more alliums. Yeah. We have a, a beautiful ephedra in the Southwest here as well that people call Mormon tea, and it is a tough plant. When are you at this point projecting you will complete your PhD work and what will be your final dissertation? So the idea is to look at my experiments for uh, this season and next season. Then I'm also looking at the green roof that Nigel done designed almost 20 years ago and doing the botanical uh, assessment of that and seeing what yeah. species survive, what hasn't mm -hmm. survived, because based on that, we can then decide how to go on. What do you do with a green roof project like that? How do you go on from there? How do you replant them? What do you do in the climate change scenario? Because you can see within this 20 years how dramatically oh. the climate has been changing. Yeah. And now in the UK, we just had another heat wave and everything is just bone dry. Yeah. And it's such a difference here. You know, in Moscow, we are used to summers like that because mm -hmm. we do have that. So usually the grass is not green. But here, everyone is shocked. The idea is to do that and also uh, to write the step classifications uh, for landscape architects and planting designers. So then you can see what evidence of step you have and what different aesthetics, but also conditions for different uh, conditions you can use in your projects. And that's, I think, is very interesting. Well, and hopefully as the uh, the movement and the um, affection for green roofs increases, these list of recommendations and research on the the you know adaptability of these different groups of plants would be just immensely useful no matter where uh, people might be looking at them. I mean, I you know can think of, San Francisco and and Los Angeles and you know big cities that have the structures which can carry these loads and for which it might be great mitigating um, planting as well as biodiversity increase in these areas. So it's also not just about green roofs. As someone who designs in the cities, the main issue is in the city is maintenance and with overtaking. So basically, from what I've learned from all my experience is the most sustainable planting 
is the planting of a dry type that is never irrigated. So whenever irrigation system is introduced, it's a disaster. Because what happens is you introduce the irrigation system, say, oh, okay, we're only going to use it in emergency situation. But then a gardener comes and he just turns it on all the time. And then a few months later, your gardens or public planting is overtaken with weeds. So basically, the only sustainable way is to design planting that is actually resistant to drought. But then the other weeds, well, weedy plants can't establish. So that's why my research is important for uh, projects in the city, because maintenance is a huge problem in every country, not just in Russia. It's exactly mm -mm, the same everywhere. in the UK. Yeah. yeah. And the US. Yeah. Yeah. So if your planting is adapted to drought stress, uh, there's less of a chance uh, that it's going to disappear very quickly. It will last longer. And it's easy to create that. You just plant on landforms or create a different substrate that is more free draining. The reason I'm uh, researching steps is just the sheer beauty and amount of perennials they have. It's just incredible. And it's one of those kinds of environments that, you know, I have never been to Russia or um, that region of the world. But in the U.S., driving by our version of steps, uh, you, you look at them and you think there's nothing there. So much of the time, they just look like nothing is there. Mm -hmm. And yet, if you walk out into them and you kind of look down or you bend down or you kneel down, you're like, mm -hmm. oh my gosh, look at this, look at this. And then uh, once you get your eyes on for that environment, you it, it takes on a whole uh, different level of beauty and uh, value and therefore respect from us, which is, uh, for me at least, a big goal in in what we do. It has to have been um, very challenging, Anna, to have been a Russian designer these last three years, this last, um, you know, specifically last year or so, uh, with the mounting violence uh, in, in the area and Russia uh, invading Ukraine. How have you been able to cope? Yes, I think for every normal Russian, it's been a really difficult time. And yes, we kind of knew where it was going. This is one of the reasons I moved to the UK as well, because I've got a son. And you know, in Russia, whenever you have a boy, everyone just tells you, oh, think about the army. And you have that thought at the back of your head. If you have a boy, what do I do when he turns conscript age? And you always have that. And I just knew I need to take him out as well. So it's not just about my career, but about his future. Uh, of course, we never knew it's going to be war. It's just something you cannot process or believe and it's just it's like our country was taken away from us it's no longer there we no longer have a home it's a different country now and god knows how and when we will get it back it may be another 50 years and all the landscape your memory connects you with they're all it's all kind of gone now and you need to forget about it which is incredibly difficult because russia has most amazing landscapes and nature is just incredible there and even the birch trees, I was talking to a friend yesterday and she said, I could go anytime I can. I have a passport of another country, but I just look at those birch trees and I just hate to leave. And it's a cliche, but that's just how it is. You do connect with the landscape. Oh, you do. But it's just no longer there because how can you be in a country that supports the war? Certainly uh, those members of the world in the US or the UK understand this idea of living uh, with a within a, a government that does things we don't agree with. Um, 
I understand that you worked on the planting plan for the Ukrainian garden at Hampton Court. Would you like to share a little bit about that and that experience for you? Because that had to have felt, I think, a little, um, I imagine it would have felt a little bit um, healing somehow or connective somehow. Yes, yeah, so it was very interesting experience. Uh, so I was really happy uh, to be part of that. So uh, I saw on Facebook that my friend Carrie Preston, who is a garden designer, an American living in the Netherlands, uh, decided to do a garden at Hampton Court with uh, a Ukrainian uh, friend who I also knew, Victoria Minola, because she invited me to Kiev for workshops. I never went because I didn't have the time, but I knew her as well. Uh, so when I saw them in the UK, I've written to them saying, do you need any help? Because I'm here and I'll be happy to help. And I knew they didn't have experience doing RHS flower shows, and they're quite specific in this country. And I did two gardens, uh, volunteering for Nigel and then for an amazing Finnish designer, Taina Suono. She was brilliant as well. I've learned so much from her. Um, so I offered my help and I said, yes, that'd be great. Um, and for that garden, it was all done really quickly. And the budget was really, really low. So usually to do an RHS garden, you need to have a budget of at least, well, to make a great one, 50,000 pounds, which is quite a lot of money to make it look nice. Uh, but in our case, the budget was really tiny and most of it went into creating the amazing structure of a burn, burn house, which worked really well. I don't know if you've seen the garden, but there's quite an image of that. So yeah, we'll include pictures in the write-up yeah. for this interview. Yeah. yeah, but the garden itself, so the idea was that uh, it set, it's like a dacha uh, set in a field of barley and a garden around it. And the, um, the house has burned down in February. So what we see now is what would have appeared after that. So the idea of the garden that nature returns and takes over and there is hope of that and uh, the rebirth of the Ukrainian spirit. Um, and it was really interesting for me to work with landscape, with that particular landscape, because basically it's the same landscape as my childhood landscape. And I could really relate to that. And uh, so the budget was really, really tiny as well. So I'll, I do like a challenge. Um, so we couldn't really buy many plants. So basically what we did, uh, we had an amazing contractor, uh, Steve, uh, the British contractor, and he took uh, his three green roofs apart. So he had three green roofs. And out of these green roofs, I have constructed verges um, of the road, like a medley verges of the road. Right. To create that feeling uh -huh. of the road and yeah. everything else. Yeah. And we also dug out some things from his garden. <laughs> so it was basically not uh, the plant material you usually use in a flower show, but all these little bits and pieces that I had to fit together to make it look authentic. And also he dug out the barley from his uh, friend who was a farmer. Uh -huh. And we put it in pots and turns out the barley is the only crop that can actually be transplanted. Oh, wow. And it did start to grow. Yeah, so oh, Carrie did a great. bit of research into that. So it was brilliant. So it did start to grow. And of course, as it is with the RHS flower show, they're brilliant in a way that um, the planting you do for them, it's not just mere representation of whatever image you have, but it all has to make sense. So for example, if you say, so this is the house that burned down in Ukraine, then you need to have plants that are native to Ukraine. If you say the house burned down, then the plants near the house can only be annuals that sprang after the fire. If you have shady bits, you need to have shady plants there. If you have sunny bits, they have to be sunny plants. If you have a field of barley, then the only thing that can grow there would be annual weeds like poppies. 
So you can't really replace them with anything else. And if you have a vegetable road, so I put a lot of antemis in there, which is native to the to Ukraine. Uh, it's a steppe plant as well, uh, but it's where um, the disturbance has happened. So it grows where the soil is disturbed. So that's why you see it near the house and near the edges of the road. So for the RHS uh, flower show, the flower garden to work, you need to have that story and it has to be consistent. Otherwise you cannot win anything. And that's brilliant that they do that because people, when you do that garden, you take your work seriously. And it's not just mere being, you know, plants show, put together yeah. like in a vase, yeah. And right, I do right, like that. Right. I did a different show garden uh, in Chamont-sur-Loire about five years ago, maybe it was six years ago. Um, and I referenced a Russian uh, meadow step there as well. Also steps from a certain Russian region. So I think it's really interesting to work with real landscapes and because they're also memory landscapes. So in the Ukrainian garden, for example, I included Cosmos, Bipinatos, which is such a childhood plant for me. So I brought the cosmos and we bought it from the garden center. And the Ukrainian guys, the Ukrainian designer from Lviv, when I saw it and I showed it to him and I said, my childhood plant. And he said exactly the same thing, but in Ukrainian, because it's is right. a childhood uh, plant for him. Or little yeah. things. Oh, that's yes, nice. the little yeah. things like Chicorium by the road. For me, that's when you put it by the road, that's immediately summer. And you can feel the summer heat and grasshoppers. Some of the things that... <laughs> Just, you know, uh, and that's so funny because that's certainly a summer childhood plant for me as well yeah. on the roadside, like yeah. headed to summer vacation with my grandparents. Yeah. I think that captures so beautifully um, some of the importance of um, landscapes and and plants in our lives, no matter who we are or or where we have lived and grown you know, as we come to an end of our, our conversation here, one of the things that I hear as a recurring theme in your work, Anna, is the importance of landscapes as an art form, as a human creation that connects us in all of these different ways and grounds us and grows us as humans from childhood memory to economy to national identity to scientific research as we face a changing climate. Can you talk more about how you view garden design and planting design and the research around it as an art form in our world? I think it's a really important aspect of what we do because this is not just a planting that is able to survive, but it's something we connect to. And when you make it as an art form, when people see it and respond to it, uh, not just as something that is just green, but something they can connect with on so many levels, whether it's their childhood memory landscape or just the sheer beauty of colors and textures, I think that's the most important thing that I can create. And it's incredibly important for me to be able to do that. Otherwise, you will be just doing ecological restoration, but that's just not not enough, not enough in it for me. So I think, and it's not the same, right? No, it's not, it's the, not same. the same. No. Yeah, ecological restoration is so important, and it is an a highly commendable act in our world. But it is different than the human impulse to garden, because that is, as you just referenced, either Nigel or Noel saying we as humans are part of this ecosystem too. And 
that is where gardens are the intersection between nature and human. And, and we know we can do it better. We can do it more ecologically. We can do it with more um, service and invitation to the other than human lives on this planet. Uh, but that art that you are employing in order to make that intersection between uh, human and nature as rich as possible seems um, commendable is is the word I would use again. Yeah. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. Thank you so much. Anna Andreva is a Russian-born garden designer and plantswoman. She is currently pursuing a horticultural and ecological research PhD focused on steppe plants of the world for green roofs, for general urban planning, and for public gardens in a changing world. plants and place this week an ode to the lovely and rugged genus sedum. The largest genus in the Crassulaceae family, sedums have long been beloved by rock gardeners and green roof aficionados the world over. But there is so much more to them. With their structural succulent foliage and their often vivid sweeping floral displays throughout spring, summer, and autumn, depending on the species and your location, from acid yellow to creamy pink and white to deep purples and reds. Sedum include more than 500 species and more varieties of plants originally native to temperate and tropical mountains in North America, Mexico, Central America, Europe, Asia, Northern and Eastern Africa, the Atlantic Islands, and the Indian Ocean Islands. One of the great joys of this genus is its adaptability to what others might find to be extenuating circumstances, and this durability is hinted at in one of the common names for the ground cover sedums, stone crop. So called because these plants often seem to appear right out of the stone and without many other inputs or resources needed. In her 2007 book, Designing with Succulents, expert Deborah Lee Baldwin notes that some of the most striking varieties are actually shrubby perennials that die to the ground in winter. And among those she considers most prized are Sedum spectabili, Sedum telethium, and Sedum vera jameson. These plants have upright, fleshy stems. They grow 18 inches to 2 feet in height, and the flowers make long-standing elements. In his 2015 book, The Plant Lover's Guide to Sedums, Brent Horvath lists 150 good sedums, and he notes they are all as easy to grow as the poster child, Autumn Joy. They like a sunny spot in well-drained soil. Brent recommends you should start small, something like Christmas cheer sedum. And if you ask me, the bright yellow foliage of sedum Mexicanum lemon ball makes a great sedum carpet on its own or mixed with other sedums with contrasting foliage colors from silvery blue to fresh green to deep burgundy. 
These small sedum are often great runners, and they are good green mulch in a matrix planting approach as well. Honestly, their foliage forms and colors are among their greatest traits, but there are others too. Because they are succulents, holding a lot of their water in their fleshy leaves and stems and tough root systems, sedums are easy to propagate by cuttings and can survive a good deal of drought and are forgiving of neglect, which means they don't need to be fed and pests and diseases are very few, which is also why they often keep you company on Rocky Mountain hikes. Whether they are blooming in spring, summer, or autumn, the many varieties of sedum that are covered in star-shaped flowers will not only brighten your pots, your whole garden, and your day, they will bring in the bees and butterflies as well, generously offering out nectar and pollen. Some of the great species that come to mind in this way include Sedum lanceolatum, Sedum divergens, Sedum oregonum, Sedum spathulifolium, which has many starry chartreuse flowers against deep red stems and is native to Colorado, and Sedum ternatum, known as both woodland and mountain sedum. Sedum ternatum is covered with lovely white starry flowers and is native from the Great Lakes East. Sedums are at home on the steppes of Siberia, on prairie meadows, and alpine rocky outcroppings. I think they'd be at home in your life too. If you have sedum stories or images you would like to share, whether newly planted, long-standing, or seen in the wild, I would love to see them drop me a note, cultivatingplace at gmail.com. Listen in next week when we look at culture and ecology with farmer Rishi, who, from his experiences in suburban Southern California and on Vandana Shiva's farm in India, helps communities with both human and ecological restoration. He believes that all of our individual footprints can leave the world with rich soil, running rivers, and smiling faces. Join us. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible by listeners just like you. Thank you for all of your growing support. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler with tech and web support from Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.